Now, what ended up happening is that some individual out of West Texas, keep in mind, this is a property in Seattle, some individual out of West Texas stole the identity of the seller. And uh, we went through the entitled title and escrow process. We went through uh, the utility payment process of paying out the, the actual owner's utilities and everything. And uh, this individual from West Texas ended up going in, signing, getting notarized. So obviously had a fake ID. And we closed on the property. And about a month later, I get a, a lawsuit that I reportedly or, or I had uh, purchased the property fraudulently. You're listening to Ice Cream with Investors, a podcast that is dedicated to teaching you how to better invest your money so that you can live a more intentional life. I'm your host, Matt Four, and it is my goal to teach and empower you to remove the roadblocks to your financial success. Welcome back to the show, everyone. I'm your host, Matt Four, and today we have on Carl Krauskopf, who is a real estate developer and managing partner of Aurora's Investment Group. Obsessed with growth, he actually flipped his way out of his corporate job in healthcare and is now focused on helping others make their money work for them through townhome construction and adding value through operational apartments. Development is something that I'm super interested in and learning more about, and I'm getting a lot of questions about, so I'm happy to have Carl on the show. And I'll just say, Carl, welcome to the show. Oh, love it. I really appreciate you having me on, man. I'm uh, really looking forward to it. Absolutely. Well, we'll start with the difficult questions here. What's your favorite ice cream? I would have to say uh, cookies and cream, but specifically from uh, a uh, ice cream shop here in Seattle called Frankie and Joe's that does all plant-based ice cream. So phenomenal, best tasting ice cream I've ever had. I was going to ask you, Seattle, I would feel like would have a ton of good ice cream spots and Frankie and Joe's is the place to go. It, it is. And you know, something that's underrated is eating ice cream when it's below 32 degrees out <laughs> it is, is, a, is a life hack, right? You just bundle up, you wear some really thick down jackets and you eat ice cream and you don't have to rush because it doesn't melt. I love it. I love it. Now you said it's plant-based. What's the, what's the plant? Do you know what's how oh, they make I, it? Who the hell knows? No, I mean, I it's a mix Got of it. like coconut and we, anything and everything that is not at all dairy. Nice, nice. Well, yeah. fortunately, like you said, you don't have to worry about rushing to eat it. I know we were chatting before. Both of us spent a lot of time in Florida, and I yep. feel like, man, you can't even get that ice cream from the cashier <laughs> to your seat before it's already melted. Not at all. Um, well, Carl, tell us, or what's the scoop? What do you do today? So today we are doing a lot of, again, like you mentioned, townhome development, and we will be getting into a part more apartment development here in the next likely 12 months. And we are also buying uh, operating assets, operating apartments right now as well. Primarily all within the Puget Sound, which is the Seattle, greater Seattle area and uh, the Southeast. So apartment value adds in the Southeast and uh, apartment value adds and ground up construction here in the Northwest. Nice. Nice. Well, where did your real estate journey begin? Real estate journey began with the news that my wife and I were going to have a kid. <laughs> and it was this, this proverbial, this ominous cloud above my head that said, we're about to have a huge expense into our life, but we have no additional income planned for. And, uh, you know, really my wife worked in education so we could look at her salary schedule for the next 10 years. I knew that my work was, my pay was directly tied to my work, but that typically wouldn't uh, bear fruit for for you know twelve to eighteen months from a promotionary standpoint. So you know I knew that I had to get some other kind of revenue or income stream, 
And uh, some one of my friends turned me on to owning duplexes and small multifamilies and collecting rent. Took me about a six-month ed- self-education journey between reading books, listening to audibles and podcasts during commutes and workouts to networking. Local networking was a huge, huge value for me. So it's been about six months again on the self-education, bought my first duplex in, remotely, by the way, which was a challenge, but uh, uh, it worked out successfully, thankfully. And uh, flipping. So flipping, like you said, I flipped myself out of a corporate job. That was a really difficult time because I had a newborn and I started flipping homes at the same time. And my company was going through a mergers and acquisitions. So it, it was the perfect storm for it's time to flip, apparently. Spent about two years, two years flipping homes and uh, did about a dozen or so uh, in that span, ranging from uh, making, uh, I think that the biggest win that we got was about $175,000 on the single flip to losing $26,000, where I was part of, I was victim, I should say. I was victim to a identity theft wholesale uh, contract, which was, that was, that was a doozy. Nice. Well, I, I want to get there. I can't let you breeze over that, but talk to us about the duplex. You said it was remotely. Where were you at the time? Where did you buy it? Why did you decide to go remote? Sure. So it was, I again, was living in Seattle and I bought in Spokane. I consider it remote since it's about a four hour drive. There was no way that I was going to be able to, you know, actively manage it, property manage it, um, uh, just given the, the 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 long distance, and uh, you know why I chose there was price, accessibility, and you know projected cash flow. I think the biggest thing was uh, really price at that point. Duplexes in Seattle were, and still are, two to three, maybe four or five times as as expensive as Spokane. But you know, we could, we were still able to get some some decent cash on cash returns um, out of that out of that duplex. It's funny when you said two to three. I thought you were going to say two to three million because I know <laughs> that's a very very expensive market. Did you have any contacts in Spokane, or like how did you end up there? Yeah, good question. So it was nope, didn't have any contacts, didn't know anybody. Uh, so it was vetting brokers, looking for investor relate investor focused brokers. And landed on one who was good. Um, was was had a very transactional relationship. So it was you know you, know, you go in, help me analyze, close it, and great. Um, that was that was kind of the end of the relationship. But you know the Spokane Spokane market's still great. You know it's it's definitely appreciating. Uh, cash flow is great. I would say, especially considered compared to Seattle. But you know we ended up pulling out, repositioning the capital there, and putting it back into uh, developments here in Seattle. Yeah. Was it a flip or did you exit, just sell it? So good question. I held it for two years uh, as a rental and then ended up selling it October, 2020. Gotcha. You said it was uh, a little bit difficult doing that, the first deal remote. I'm a big proponent of you don't have to be local to the area to do your first deals, but there are obviously some differences between doing it in market and remotely. What did you learn? What do you think you would uh, pass on to somebody that's looking to do that strategy? So I would say two things. A, you know, well, first the premise is relationships, making sure that you have good, solid relationships that you know and trust in the market before you actually try and penetrate a market, right? You can still go in, do your due diligence, but I I would not buy uh, something. uh, uh, I would not buy something remotely if I don't have a, a solid relationship in that market. So that's first and foremost. And then, uh, secondly, is on the uh, if you are planning on adding value through you know extensive uh, extensive renovations, is know the know the exit plan on it, right? So know that you are going to either be able to refinance when you're going to refinance, 
and how much of that construction cost you're going to be putting uh, getting back out because I ended up having to uh, sink in a lot of cash on the on the upfront purchase plus a good amount of construction about 45,000 on the construction from the renovation so again relationships and then uh, know your exit plan Love it. Love it. All right. So you said in the middle of your journey that you lost $26,000 to a wholesaler. I've got to know what's the story there. So the wholesaler was great. Love him. He's a good guy. Nothing against him at all. He was also part of the the victimization. What ended up happening is that I, I got this incredible deal. I had worked with this, this wholesaler in the past before, which uh, for those that may not know wholesaling, it's effectively uh, selling the rights to a purchase and sale contract. Some states it's legal, some states it's not. Here in Washington, it's totally legal. So effectively, again, I bought the rights to per- to purchase the home from this individual, from this wholesaler. And uh, obviously the wholesalers bring a huge value to us as investors, as, uh, as they're obviously going out, doing a lot of the legwork, finding these properties, getting them under contract. And that process is not easy. It's a long, a long courting relationship. I ended up getting this, uh, working with the, this wholesaler again. Uh, he brought me out to the project, loved it. The numbers penciled really well, not overly well, not not so well that it was like, wow, this is kind of a steal of a deal. It was on par, right? It was on. It was an absolutely on par uh, wholesale where, you know, we were looking at 20, 25% margin and uh, it was going to be a great flip. Now, what ended up happening is that some individual out of West Texas, keep in mind, this is a property in Seattle. Uh, some individual out of West Texas stole the identity of the seller. And uh, we went through the entire title and escrow process. We went through uh, the utility payment process of paying out the the actual owner's utilities and everything. And uh, this individual from West Texas ended up going in, signing, getting notarized. So obviously had a fake ID. And we closed on the property. And about a month later, I get a, a lawsuit that I portedly or, or I had uh, purchased the property fraudulently. So it's been about two to three months, probably three months through the legal process of uh, having the title insurance, which by the way, highly recommend having title insurance and having the title attorneys go through, do their due diligence. And they found that yes, indeed, this was part of a identity fraud. And uh, they paid out the, their claims or they paid out their title insurance Thank God my wholesaler was a was a good guy and I had a relationship. He returned his wholesale fee. But where I was left uh, empty was the renovations that I had started already on the project, which was replacing of the roof, siding, windows, et cetera. Did, um, so lots of questions there. So the title insurance, because there was identity theft, paid you back your your deposit, your all cash offer? What did they pay back there? They paid the cash value of the ins- of the insured property, which was the purchase price that the uh, vic- that the identity thief had on the property. So to give you some numbers, um, and th- these are round numbers because it's been about three years. Sure. Is uh, it was two hundred seventy thousand dollars was the right was the purchase and sale agreement. My uh, wholesale uh, wholesale agent had a thirty seven thousand dollar assignment fee, which is great. Absolutely, was totally good with that. And the, so whatever that purchase price, whatever the, the, the sum of that is, something like 315 somewhere thereabouts. Um, so title insurance paid out the 270, the, the, the original PSA number. The wholesaler paid out their assignment fee, 
And then where I was left empty was the uh, construction costs. Gotcha. So I'm assuming the property was vacant. Yes, it was vacant. The, the crazy thing is that it was vacant for, believe it or not, 15 years. Yeah, the seller who kept it vacant had accumulated $17,000 worth of vacancy fines from the city. And uh, supposedly they were reported of the pending sale two weeks prior to the sale, but never bothered to tell anybody. Gotcha. Gotcha. So how would you avoid this in the future? Like I, first of all, I guess, let me, let me try to make sure I understand. Mr. And Smith owned this home. It's vacant. It's been vacant for 15 years. West Texas person steals Mr. And Mrs. Smith's identity, answers a wholesaler's call or marketing or whatever says, yeah, I'm interested, sells you the property. And then only to come back two to three months later after you had started the renovations to find out that Mr. and Mrs. Smith in West Texas was not the real Mr. and Mrs. Smith that owns the property. Correct. And Mr. and Mrs. Smith in this case actually lived in Seattle. So they were like two neighborhoods away. Gotcha. Gotcha. So how did they find out? Like what, what was, what was the end result here? Like what are they in the property now? So the end, how do they find out was again, that uh, the payout of the vacancy fines. So C- the city of Seattle notified them, Hey, congratulations. We're going to pay out your vacancy fines via yeah. the upcoming sale. And they were, Oh, oh wow. Okay. Well, I didn't know we were <laughs> was selling. Are you, are you selling the home, uh, Mr. Smith? No. Are you selling the home, Mrs. Smith? And then, you know, uh, they followed the kind of legal courses there. Wow. Um, the end result was they were returned the home. Uh, somewhere about three, four months after the whole, the, the original purchase. Gotcha. Could you not buy it from them for the, uh, oh man, I tried so hard. (laughs) Maybe she was just so the, the, uh, the other sticky part about this is the actual part of the, the, the owners, uh, one of the members uh, ended up passing away during the entire lawsuit process. So the, the property also got stuck in probate. So gotcha. That extended the process. Yeah, that's a that's a pretty crazy story. And all of my times listening to podcasts and talking to folks, I don't think I've ever heard something as uh, crazy as identity theft on a wholesale agreement. So, so lesson learned, right? I always try and figure out what's the lesson learned here because everything's for a reason. Lesson learned is is not as big as you would imagine, but it's just vetting and knowing who you're, who you're, what relationship you're in, right? Whether it's a general contractor, whether it's you know primarily in this case the owner. Right, making sure that you know who you're dealing with is either a wholesaler or a broker or something off market where it's not doesn't have a lot of visibility and publicity is you know come to find what I found out on the back end is that that the wholesaler and uh, uh, their relationship with the quote seller was entirely digital, so they never met face to face, and had they met face to face, they would have realized this person from West Texas was a young you know. 20, 30 year old, whereas the seller was an 87 year old. So I I think it's, that's, that's, that's a lesson learned is just know who you're working with, whether it's again, the owner on an off market property, or if it's a general contractor or whoever it happens to be. Yeah. Crazy stuff. Are you, uh, are you still flipping today or are you done the flipping business? So we primarily done with the flipping business in and of itself. But here in Seattle, we've got, and there's a couple other cities in the in the market, the area here, that you can build and sell a detached ADU. So think of like a mother-in-law suite, uh, mother-in-law cottage, backyard cottage, effectively a separate home in your backyard. And uh, here in Seattle, it's a thousand square foot, up to a thousand square feet that you can put uh, that you can build one of these detached ADUs. 
And we also have the process of converting the property into a condominium. So we are flipping homes only where there is the 100% feasibility of constructing a detached ADU in the backyard where we can either rent one or both units or sell one or both units. Yeah, this is a great strategy. And I know we were talking about it before. A lot of markets in the Northwest are dealing with this affordable housing crisis. And one of the ways they're addressing that is allowing people with larger land to subdivide it essentially and build these ADUs or not subdivide it. And I actually got a friend out in North Carolina that's doing the same. They're taking this 15 acre lot with one home on it, subdividing it and throwing houses on it. Um, what, what are the, you said with a hundred percent, um, certainty that you can go execute the strategy, what it, what about it makes it hundred percent certain? Are there specific zoning laws or parts of the market? Like talk to us a little bit about that. Sure. Uh, so zoning is pretty, is pretty straightforward, right? It's basically any kind of single family home, any kind of single family zone property can, you can put a detached ADU on it. The biggest restrictions are going to be uh, placement of the detached ADU accessibility, right? Can you get a car? You don't actually need uh, off-street parking, but it's nice to have when you sell it and when you rent it. So accessibility is, is, is a nice to have, but it's not a must have. And then uh, utilities is the is the next best, big, biggest thing for us is how are we going to get utilities back to the, pro, uh, to the detached ADU? And is it cost prohibitive or is it, uh, is it an easy process? So Things like, do I have to go underground boring, which which is this giant machine that comes out and basically runs this underground conduit for the electrical? And how far do I have to do that, right? For the electrical, for the water, sewer, et cetera. So cost prohibitive is the other factor that leads to determining whether or not we can do a... Um, a detached ADU. And I think one thing on the uh, uh, I should have mentioned on the, on the accessibility is setbacks. Obviously, we, we've we've got setback requirements here in Seattle. They're they're relatively you know progressive in the in the sense that it's only five feet off of the lot, but you know making sure that obviously we can fit a fit the unit in the backyard is is pretty critical. When you're talking about, so I'm in Tennessee. We have a ton of limestone underneath us in the Middle Tennessee area in Nashville. When you're talking about hooking up to the utilities, is there like a distance requirement that you're trying to gauge, or is it just strictly what the land is? Like, what what helps us understand what that would cost? Sure. So typically, the the land is here in Seattle is is relatively soft, uh, soft, easy to work with from an excavation standpoint. You can also do underground boring, as I mentioned. And uh, you know, from a cost perspective, I mean, usually we're looking to get all of our utilities connected for under $30,000. So in, in generally speaking, all three utilities are going to be at the front of the property. And then we're gonna, in most cases, we're going to be building the detached ADU in the very back of the property. Rare instances, are we able to do it on the side yard or even in front of the existing home? Gotcha. So you're still executing, I guess, like a wholesaler strategy where you're marketing uh, properties that you feel like might be distressed and trying to run the strategy, or are you buying properties from a wholesaler that are in this situation? How are you finding your, your sure. leads right now? So, so it's primarily the latter, right? Working with either wholesalers or brokers working on the MLS. I'm a broker myself here in Washington. So I, I am always constantly sourcing it as well. Um, my team is always looking for it as well. So we're not going direct to seller right now. Just because you know our, our focus is mostly on the townhome developments, the apartment developments, and the apartment holds. Um, so this is this is a nice way to make you know 
what we're looking at minimum, usually $250,000 margin on uh, the front of the back home, or, you know, we're able to refinance and be at close to 60% loan to value on both homes. Nice. Nice. Yeah. I love the strategy. I think we were chatting. I, I connected with a guy over in Portland that's running these and I mean, the returns on them are phenomenal. Um, so this is, this is a great strategy. How are you building the ADUs? And the reason why I asked that is I'm seeing a lot of like modular 500 mm. square feet homes. Are you doing stick builds? Are you doing modular builds? Are you doing some of these uh, third-party th- 3D building materials? How are you guys building them? I would absolutely love to get into the 3D building, but not yet. Mm. Um, I think that I think the the learning curve there is going to be the subcontractors, especially on the back end, right? Of hey, I want to re- remodel my home, but it's made out of like uh, concrete paste. I don't know how to cut into concrete paste, right? Um, So I wish we could get into that. It's not going to happen right now. Modulars just don't, you know, it it seems great from a cost perspective. They, 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 you know, it looks great, but in in actuality, most cases, it's more expensive than stick built. Um, I think the big value prop that they have is speed as well as reducing unwaste, which is a big, big thing for us as well. But from a cost perspective, stick built is the way to go still right now in Seattle. And we're managing all the subs, subcontractors on these small detached ADU projects. And, uh, you know, the nice thing about these is compare it, when you compare them to a flip is that everything is generally speaking, uh, much more level, much more plumb. So you're not working with, you know, in Seattle, we're working with, you know, typically 50 to 75 year old homes is, is what we're, is what we're doing. So, you know, when you remove the sheetrock and you try and put new sheetrock on, well, guess what? None of the walls are even. So <laughs> go, try and figure that out. Right. So you're having to butt strip and put in uh, uh, fur out the walls and make them. So the new construction on the dad is everything's, you know, straight works well, nothing, uh, no, no, no real curveballs. Yeah. It's funny you say that I'm smiling because after doing a couple renovations and flips and things like that, you would think that all the drywall in your house looks even until you start getting down to the nuts of it. And it is definitely never even. Nope, not at all. Whenever I, I look at soffits now on the interior of homes much differently yeah. than when I did before, when, before I was doing studs at remodels. Yeah. So now when you buy these homes and put the ADUs on the back of them, are you subdividing the land and then selling them as two units? Are you keeping them as one unit? Are you keeping them and renting them short term? Like talk us through your exit strategies here. Sure. So one of the big, the biggest thing for me in a development is that there always has to be two very competitive exit strategies, meaning I have to be able to sell it and make a, make a certain margin. In, in assuming there's no appreciation, that's that's the big thing that we we do is we don't assume any appreciation on any of our developments. So if we have a 12 month project, we're going to assume that the sale is going to be based on the last three months of sales comps. That's absolutely critical. We and, and we include inflation on our costs. So what does that end up spelling? That it ends up spelling typically uh, higher projected returns for our investors. So first and foremost is we have to have com- very competitive exit strategies, um, and then on the on the rental side, right, we're looking at areas that are exper- that are in the path of progress, that have good accessibility to amenities and highways, and uh, you know depending on whether it's kind of close further out in the suburbs, you know we'll do long term leases, or if it's in you know a highly favorable walk score high walk score area, we will refinance and. Uh, 
short-term it, short-term rental. Yeah, I like that you said no appreciation because as we're recording this, interest rates are now above five. Fed is tapering. Everybody is asking about is the real estate market in a bubble, 20% year-on-year growth, all that kind of stuff. I typically answer that question with, it depends on where, however long your hold period is. Yep. If your hold period is six months, I have no idea if we're in a bubble or not. If your hold yep. period is 40 years, no, we're not in a bubble. It will go up and to the right from where it is today. Right. Um, but I, I think that we are starting to get into these this market where if you're not in a natively growing, organically growing market with that are bringing jobs and people and things like that, and you're in a tertiary market, that's just, a, just to receive some of the benefits of the past couple of years here, but hasn't had those population growth and mm-hmm. job mokes and things like that. Yeah. You're in a weird spot. Yep. But as long as you're in the right markets, I think you're still okay for the next little bit. Um, is that kind of what you see in Seattle? What do you see in Seattle right now? So before I answer that question, I'd like to just quickly opine on the tertiary. Completely agree with you on the tertiary. I think the the tertiary markets are uh, were and have been speculative for a while. And I think there was a lot of money made in the tertiary markets. But I think now that we're we're seeing where we're at right now, I think I think quickly people are starting to look at the tertiary markets quite a bit differently. So, you know, we we've always been a primary investor in uh uh, big MSAs, primary MSAs, Seattle is being one of the big ones. Um, and, uh, you know, other areas that are experiencing hyperinflation, you know, one uh, that I would call out is Phoenix is, you know, they, they recognize, I saw an article this morning that Phoenix was the number one state city, excuse me, number one city in the, in the States that experienced the highest inflation rates. So, uh, you know, I, I think when I look at, when we've been looking at purchasing and break and breaking into the Phoenix market, you know, every single time we looked at buying and making offers, our offers were gener- were always going to be on actuals. Um, just because that's that's how we operate. That's the investors that we operate for. And our offers were generally speaking half of what the sellers were were getting um, from an offer price. And so, you know, a lot of that is going to be institutional funds they're betting on the markets. They're betting on the trends of the market, not just the asset. So really what we're doing is we're, we're taking the conservative long path to wealth and, and one that we believe is, again, conservative. And uh, uh, you know what we like to say is protect that capital, right? Return on capital is fantastic, but return of capital is our number one goal. Um, so Seattle, where are we seeing Seattle right now? I, I see Seattle as a still safe market, in my opinion, for a couple of reasons. A, obviously, the tech sector is continuing to grow. Amazon, Microsoft, uh, T-Mobile, obviously, they're in the communication, but you know, somewhat of a, t- a tech uh, tech overlap. All of these are massive, massive employers that are continuing to grow and continuing to double down on uh, the Seattle area uh, em- em- uh, employee count population, if you will. And then moreover, obviously, kind of the secondary uh, secondary employers and then the startups are also continuing to add employees here. One other last note before I stop is the uh, uh, what I would look at as cloud computing. Cloud computing is this is this space that is still globally underutilized uh, 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 between businesses and consumers. And if you look at the shareholders or market holders of uh, cloud computing, the 
the two employers that hold uh, the vast majority of that space, Amazon and Microsoft, they're both here and are doubling down their, their employees here. Yeah, I agree with a lot of what you just said. I want to highlight a couple of things. One, return on capital versus return of capital. I think that is a very important distinction for new investors. Return on your capital is very, very good. I love return on capital, but I even love more return of capital. I want to know that my investment is protected overall from a capital preservation standpoint. Um, the second thing I would say about the Seattle market is I never really even thought about it from the cloud computing space. Uh, most of our listeners know I'm in technology sales today. So it's a it's a world that I live in every single day. And Amazon and Azure, uh, Microsoft make yeah. up more than 60% of that market. And that's only going to continue to grow. The last thing is the things, some of the things I'm reading right now are, I didn't know that Seattle was one of the biggest ports we have not from a deep water perspective, but because of distance to the greater Eastern Asian market. Mm -hmm. um, so because of that, are we going to import more goods or less goods? It's hard for me to believe that we're going to import less goods over the future. And also there's a lot of conversations right now about Russian airspace being closed down and how uh, Anchorage is going to revitalize itself as the next hub for aircraft that is going over uh, that direction in the world because of flight sure. paths and things like that. And I think sure. Seattle's in prime market to capture, continue to capture both of those. So yeah, uh, yeah, you're in a you're in a good spot in a market that has a lot of demographic, geographic trends in its favor. Yeah, absolutely agree. And, and just one thing on the port side of things is we have uh, a, uh, I think it's called Port Island or so, uh, something to that degree, where it's this massive port within Seattle that is absolutely underutilized and is just sitting land. Um, and, uh, you know, just waiting for whenever either the port of Seattle or uh, whoever it happens to be comes in and, and actually starts utilizing that that section of the port. I think we've still got quite a bit of space, real estate, uh, no pun intended, but real estate for uh, growth in our port uh, port business. Nice, nice. Um, well, the last topic I really want to cover here is you mentioned a little bit about apartment investing and then potentially maybe even doing some development on the apartment side. Talk to us a little bit about where are you at with the apartment space right now? Sure. So on the apartment space, on the operating ones, we've got a, a, an apartment down in Tucson and uh, we are offering, we've got, we're in, in negotiation on one uh, a little bit north of Seattle in a suburb called Linwood. Um, great, great area, great opportunity there. Uh, really looking forward to hopefully getting that under contract and closing on that here in the next probably 120, 120 days. Um, on the uh, apartment development side uh, is, you know, one of the big, big, big trends here in Seattle, obviously you, you touched on it is housing affordability. And that's both on the home ownership as well as the rental. So, uh, you know, one thing that we can't do is we, we're not doing a great job at creating affordable rentals via obviously apartments. And so uh, one trend that has been, uh, that has really been a staple for the North Seattle and downtown Seattle markets are what's called small efficiency dwelling units, micro units and efficiency dwelling units. So think about apartments that range from 200 to 500 square feet. And uh, right now it's still a, uh, it's still early in its stages, right? Probably three to five years, but really what we're, what those, those, uh, those types of apartments are trying to, to solve are service workers that want to still be close to downtown, close to amenities that don't necessarily want to commute 45 minutes to an hour for, you know, maybe, uh, uh, maybe a barista, maybe a, a, a serving job or something like that. So 
you know, these efficiency dwelling units are a great play uh, uh, for both the market as well as uh, rental renters, as well as ourselves as, as the investment group coming in, building them out, holding them out for five, 10 years, because they're, they're typically going up in these, again, high walk score areas where we've got the option to do, uh, you know, long-term leases or even potential short or midterm leases, because, you know, they're generally speaking next to uh, big hospitals and the uh, University of Washington as well. Yeah, that's interesting. If you don't know what those are, if you're a listener out there and you don't know what they are, they're huge in Asia. I mean, huge in Asia. Yep. So I, I can see communal kitchens, small living areas, small living areas, plus a little bit of a kitchen. Um, I actually thought you were going to go to the outskirts of the city and talk a little bit about I hybrid work is a real thing. I don't think we'll go back into the office like we used to, but we will definitely still have offices and yep. especially for engineering talent that need to get together and brainstorm whiteboard and build those, those, uh, natural organic relationships. So I thought you were going to talk about like, if you get an hour and a half in the series, sit an hour and a half outside of the city, two hours out of the side of the city, you could still make that commute once sure. a week, once sure. every other week, once a month kind of thing, but at least you get out in this out in affordable housing. So um, yeah, this micro apartment, micro efficiency units are super interesting. Yeah. And so on the, on the outskirts, you know, you'll certainly see a lot of Amazon, Microsoft, Facebook, Google, some of the big ones that are, and will continue to offer, you know, let's call it two days in the office, three days out of the office, you know, sure. You can make it a commute two days a week for an hour, hour and a half. It's no big deal. Especially if you're, instead of living in a 1200 square foot home, you're living in a 3,800 square foot home. Right. And they cost the same and you've got acreage. Right. Love it. Love it. Well, Carl, I want to take us to the last round here. We're calling this the five toppings. Our first one is what is your favorite book or what's a book that you've read recently that's given you a paradigm shift? Sure. So I'll have to say my favorite book is one called Bold by Peter Diamandis. The subtitle is How to Go Big, Create Wealth and Impact the World. I think this is a timeless book. It's one that is riddled with uh, riddled with uh, innovations, riddled with ways to just think about business problems differently and, and recreate solutions to, uh, you know, ageless or timeless, I should say, timeless, uh, timeless issues that, you know, whether you as, as a consumer or a business owner um, face every day. Interesting. I haven't heard that one said yet. So I'll have to go check that one out. Our second one is, I believe that what the person you become 10 years from now is directly correlated to the things you do every day and the habits that you have. What are some of the things that you do every day? Two things I would, I would call out is a uh, workout. So I go to the gym every morning, 5.30 AM without fail. Um, and then the second is goals. So writing down goals daily as well. That typically comes right after my gym session. So that way I've got a, a fresh, active, really hyper Hyper brain, I'll call it. Um, hyper thought uh, brain is going through. Where do I want to be in ten years? And just st- uh, in- instead of saying I want to, it's I am a or I I am doing this. So working out, writing down goals. Yeah, one of the keys there, I think, too, is changing the language in which you speak to yourself. That is so critical. Yep. Our third one is: What's the best piece of advice you've ever received? It was from my late grandmother. Uh, and it was keep growing. And if you're not growing, you're dying. And uh, I think that was said to me as a, uh, in my early childhood and has probably been the one thing that has stuck with me the most in terms of who I am, what I like to do within business, which is 
again, obsession with growth is continue growing both, both personally, professionally, growing our uh, investor base, growing our company uh, and growing our reach. I love it. I love it. Our fourth one is what's the thing that you're most proud of? Uh, fourth thing. So it's, it's a little arbitrary. Maybe uh, if I could say that it's the relationships that I've created. It's the relationship with my wife, with my daughter, uh, with my business partner, with my mentors and with my business industry stakeholders. So really spending the time understanding what their pain points are, offering anything in any way that I can um, just really uh, provide value back over to them. Again, it, it sounds a little bit uh, maybe cliche, but it really is the the time and effort that I put into each one of the relationships that I've got, I, I think is is certainly the most important um, and, the, and the most uh, proud I am, uh, proud thing that I've done. Relationships are harder, hard to build, harder to maintain. Yep. Our last one is if you could sit down and eat a bowl of ice cream with anyone dead or alive, who would it be and why? Sure. So, Ooh, God, I would probably, can I have two? Uh, yes. Yes. Okay. I always love hearing people's answer to this. So you can have as many as you want. <laughs> okay, perfect. So the first one is, is straightforward. Peter Diamandis. I think that I would love to sit down, eat a bowl of ice cream with him. I think that we would probably invent uh, invent a new type of ice cream. Uh, maybe it's dots or uh, astronaut ice cream. I don't know. Um, would just love to pick his brain in terms of again, kind of going back to that book, innovation. Uh, you know, how do you truly look at a at a business problem and come up with a novel solution? Um, the second one may be a little bit contrary. Uh, so I'll, I'll go ahead and say it is a, uh, and I, I think this was probably my second favorite book is Genghis Khan and the uh, making of the modern world. I think that the, obviously he was a brutal tyrant, killed a lot of people, did a lot of bad things, conquered. Um, but I think the, re- the way that he built relationships and built that empire was certainly one that was, uh, very interesting, very pragmatic, very, uh, um, you know, kind of prescriptive, I would say prescriptive of, at how he looked at, at how he looked at problems and how he created, you know, in, in his mind solutions again, not, not the most straightforward, probably contrary, but certainly one that, uh, I would love to eat some ice cream with. I haven't read the book, but I've watched a couple documentaries. Didn't he, wasn't he really big on like conquer and then leave, let be like, religion, society yeah. functioning, all that kind of stuff. But if you start becoming a problem, we'll come in and murder everyone. <laughs> but but as long as you guys are, are just quiet and keep to yourself, like you could do whatever you want over there. Wasn't he yep. kind of that this philosophy? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. He wanted to get it under under his rule and under under his way. But you know, again, it was, you know, uh what is the word? Synergy, maybe, maybe, maybe not the the best word, but um, just living in harmony, right? And, and yeah. obviously, a lot of his family was against that and wanted wanted the empire to convert, you know, those that he conquered into everything Mongolian, every kind of Mongolian way. But you know, Genghis was a little bit different. Yeah, during a crazy time full of war, it was said that you could walk across the entire Genghis Khan empire with like a stack of gold on top of your head, and no one would touch you if you were blessed by Genghis yeah. to, to walk through the crown, uh, walk through the empire. It's kind of crazy. Well, Carl, fantastic conversation. I really appreciate some of the insights into the ADUs. We're going to have to chat offline on some of that strategy because I'm seeing that become more and more of a strategy that cities are implementing. Um, Here in Nashville, we're not fully there, but I've seen a couple people that are converting to ADUs. So I'd love to learn more about that in the future. But if our listeners wanted to reach out to you, connect, learn more about what you got going on, where's the best place we could point them? 
Sure. So I'm on LinkedIn, uh, Carl Krauskopf, uh, and I am also on Instagram. I've got uh, at aurorasinvestmentgroup.com. And if you'd like, I've got a website, aurorasinvestmentgroup.com. And if you'd like, you can email me directly, uh, Carl with a K, K-A-R-L at aurorasinvestmentgroup.com. Perfect. We'll have all those links in the show notes and uh, look forward to having you back on, Carl. Appreciate the conversation. Thanks, Matt. Thank you for listening to Ice Cream with Investors. If you like what we serve you here, it would mean the world to me if you would like, subscribe, and leave a review on your favorite podcast app.